Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you. My name's Devin. I'm the lead pastor here at Berean. And uh, I know that some of you are salivating right now because you are eager beavers, which is a term I've never understood because I don't know much about beavers. I don't know if some are eager and wake up early, some are lazy, apathetic, and unmotivated. And if that's a real controversial thing in the beaver world, but Some of you have read ahead in the Gospel of Mark, and you know that logically speaking, the next passage that we're going to deal with is an interesting one. It's the passage in which Jesus talks about the one unforgivable sin. Jesus says, all these sins can be forgiven. There's one sin that will damn you. There will one, there is one particular sin called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so you are excited to dive in. And I'm excited to cover that next week. (laughs) Today, we're going to look at a short passage that happens before and after the section where Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And today's topic will hit close to home. So close, in fact, that it might just hit within the home. Because today we're talking about what do we do when we have family members, loved ones, those we care about most who don't believe. You see, Jesus experienced issues within his own family, that he had brothers who didn't believe. And what we're going to see today from the text as we look at it, and as we look through the rest of the New Testament, is that there is good news for those of us who have family members who don't yet believe. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you open them up to Mark chapter three. That is Mark chapter three. I'm gonna look today at verses 20 and 21, and then we'll skip down to verses 31 through 34. Now, if you're able to stand, I wanna invite you to do that as I read this passage. The words will be on the screen. I want to encourage you and to remind you that as we gather today, we gather under the authority of God's word at all times. And so this church is the word of God. Then it says he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God He is my brother. She is my sister. She is my mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. 
Now, if you're familiar or aware of how Jesus' family responds over time to his claims, you'll know that this is a rather interesting passage for a number of reasons. Here we're told in verses 20 and 21 that his family came to get him because they simply did not believe. They said he's out of his mind. Something's gone wrong with him. And the one of his brothers specifically that we're given some more information on in the Bible is his brother called James. Now, can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? That no matter how annoying you were, or how much you teased, or how much you tagged along, your older brother never once wailed on you. Maybe James grew up ill-adjusted, I don't know, from not having, you know, that opportunity. But growing up with Jesus as an older brother, he would have known from experience that there was something unique about him. Jesus was sinless, perfect. Imagine a perfect brother. You would know there's something significant, something special about him. Maybe James thought, hey, my brother might be like one of those Old Testament prophets that we read about in our scriptures. Maybe there's something special or significant about him. But even so, even with his experience interacting with Jesus, these claims that were circulating about my brother being the Messiah, being the Son of God, it was too much for James at this point. James, along with his mother Mary, the mother of Jesus, go to collect him, to bring him back home so that he can get some time to maybe unwind. This public ministry has gone to his head. Something's happening internally. He's not doing well. His mental health is struggling. They come to get him because they think he is out of his mind. This is where James starts. And then as you read the rest of the New Testament, you will see that things for James begin to change. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the disciples are gathered together after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They are gathered together waiting for the Spirit to come. And we are told specifically that his brothers are there waiting with the disciples. You continue to flip through the New Testament and you get to a book with the name of James written by Jesus' half-brother, James. A man who at this point in the story doubts Jesus, thinks he's gone insane, ends up becoming a Christian, follower of Christ, ends up becoming a pastor, and ends up writing part of the New Testament. Further than that, we know that James would go on to be martyred for his faith in Christ. His faith in his brother. In 60 to 67 AD, James is stoned to death. Killed for following his brother. Declaring allegiance to his brother. Why? Hmm? What could possibly transform him from a doubter, a skeptic, a critic of Jesus to ending up giving his life Declaring that my brother was the Lord of all. My brother was the Son of God, come in the flesh. What made the difference? The difference you can read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. 
It's this great passage where Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And oftentimes we'll preach through that on, on Easter and so forth, where Paul goes to great lengths to say, I need everyone to see how all this message of Christianity centers around the literal, physical, actual, tactile resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just appear to a few select individuals. Right? Well, he, didn't appear to two, he didn't appear to two or three disciples and then they had to go to the rest of the disciples and say, hey, just trust me, Jesus is resurrected. Jesus appeared to many, one of whom was James, his brother. So what transformed James? What changed his perspective? What convinced him that his brother really was who he claimed? It was the resurrection. How else can you explain such a radical transformation? What, did he do it for the power? The prestige? The money? No, man, he gave his life for Christ. There is no other explanation than that this man, one of these brothers that we are reading about here, saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Now, additionally, this is helpful to us as we seek to align our understanding of God, our theology, to what Scripture actually teaches. Because both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church teach a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Teaching that Jesus, that Mary, after she gave birth to Jesus, continued to be a virgin for the rest of her life. Now, all Christians would agree, biblical Christians would agree that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Mary truly was a virgin when she gave birth. But the Bible does not teach that Mary continued to be a virgin. Why is that? Well, and how do we know that? First of all, why would she? Sex is a gift from God given to his people under the covenant of marriage. God created it for man and wife to enjoy in marriage. God did not create man and woman, look away for a minute and then look back and say, oh my goodness, what are you guys doing down there? It is a gift. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, the apostle, goes to great lengths to explain how this should function in marriage. And he says, listen, it's not right to deprive each other. That sex is a gift to be enjoyed. And if you're going to abstain in marriage, Paul says, listen, just do it for a limited time so you can devote yourselves to prayer, lest you be tempted by the devil. So Mary, eventually losing her virginity, would not in any way defile her or lessen her. It was not a sinful act that her and Joseph would have enjoyed later in their marriage. So, after she gave birth to Jesus, Mary would have healed up, and there was Joseph waiting. Saying, Mary, you've been working hard. How would a back rub sound? <laughs> How are you doing? Here, let me do the dishes. <laughs> so 
there's the logical implication. But secondly, as we read scripture, we are taught and told about other children. Okay, so in Luke 2, 7, Jesus is called the firstborn of Mary, indicating that others would come. In Matthew 1, 25, we're told that Joseph did not know her, that is Mary, until she had brought forth her firstborn son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Jesus' believing brothers were talked about. And here, we are told that his mother and his brothers came calling. Now, track with me here on the logic. If this text was talking about Jesus' spiritual brothers, Jesus' words wouldn't make any sense. Right? It only makes sense if they're talking about his familial, literal brother and mother. So think about it with me. If somebody came to Jesus and they said here, Jesus, your spiritual brothers and sisters, are, are, your brother and mother are here to get you. And he responded back with, who are my spiritual brothers and my spiritual mother? It's these spiritual brothers and spiritual mothers. It wouldn't make any sense. He's clearly differentiating here between his familial connections and who he now calls brother and sister and mother. So it's important that at all times, regardless of what you've been taught or what individuals have told you, that our theology, our understanding of God comes from careful study of Scripture and not from any man, priest, or authority. Now, enough of the academic school lecturing. Let's get into the the heart here of what this passage shows us as it relates to our families. Here's what I want you to see, first of all. That Jesus' own family didn't understand him fully. So don't be surprised when those closest to you don't understand your faith. If I could put it in a more crass way, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. And maybe your family thinks you're crazy. Because you got this new faith now. You go to church every week. You serve in all of these different ways. Maybe they just think you've lost it. Now, how many of us would have unbelieving or unsaved family members that just don't believe in Jesus? That don't share our faith? I mean, most of us, right? Maybe it's a spouse, a brother a sister who walked away from the Lord, a son or a daughter who's, who's abandoned their faith. And I have these conversations all the time. Unsolicited, unprompted. I had one conversation this week in my office. I had one conversation before the services today in the commons. I had one conversation between the services today as people sharing about family members who don't know Christ. And it is heartbreaking. Because, man, we love Jesus. He's everything to us. And we love these people, and we so desperately want them to experience and to have what we have. And it weighs heavy on our hearts. We so desperately want to see them come to faith in Jesus and find their life in him. So what do you do if you have family members who don't believe? Very quickly, let me give you a few encouragements on this front. Here's what I would say you should do if you have family members who don't yet know Christ. Here's number one. Love and serve them as a person and don't view them as a project. 
love them as a human being made in the image of God. Even if they never respond to the gospel in your lifetime, they are still a gift from God to you to be loved and cared for and served. We don't view them as a project. Because what happens when a project is overdue and doesn't meet our timelines? We get frustrated. But what happens with people? People, we're just called to love. So we love them. We serve them. We recognize their full humanity as image bearers of God. They're not projects, they're people. So we love them and we serve them. You know, maybe you're a new believer and you have all this passion and excitement and this new life and you are amazed at what you found in Jesus. And so the next family gathering, you go in and you just launch into this tirade and you're standing up at Thanksgiving dinner on a chair and you're preaching to your family thinking surely they're gonna respond. I wanna encourage you to be very cautious in the early stages, not to burn any bridges, not to shame anyone, but to go with a heart of love and service and to recognize that sometimes it takes time. So love and serve and recognize that they're a person, not a project. That's number one. Number two is this. Live as an example in all things. How you live matters. I'm not saying be perfect. They already know you're not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But man, it's hard with family, isn't it? Because they see you at your worst. They know all the buttons to press, don't they? They see the real you. The unfiltered, 5 a.m., bedhead, bad breath you. And you can fake it to other people, but the closer that somebody is to you, the more that they will see the real you. You know, that's one of the reasons as we hire pastors here at Berean, I would never hire a pastor unless I, Heather and I had significant time with them and their spouse. I wanna see how they interact. I wanna see what happens when she cuts him off How does he respond? What happens when he corrects her? How does she respond? Talk to them about their marriage. Talk to them about, because you can look one way up in public, up on stage or teaching a class, but what's happening behind the scenes? What What kind of love and intimacy is there in the home? Of course, we're not looking for perfection, but those closest to us have the greatest awareness of who we are. So when you have family that aren't believers, your job isn't to preach at them or to debate them or to argue with them. It is to love them and serve them and be an example to them. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1, we read this. Wives, it says, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. We'll We'll unpack that in the future. But listen to this. If any of them do not believe the word, They may be won over without words by the behavior, the conduct of their wives. It's the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Live, it says, as examples before those unbelieving spouses. 
In so many ways, it can be more difficult to share the gospel with your family than with total strangers. You know, it's often said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I would argue that that's incomplete and can be unhelpful if you're not thinking well about it. I think it needs more. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ needs more than just actions, okay? Because the message of the gospel is not, hey, if you try really hard, you can live a nice, moral, kind life like me. Look at my example and try to imitate me. No, the message of the gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed and declared that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to remove you and to transform you from being an object of God's wrath because of your sin to an object of his affection because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf and through his resurrection. That's the message of the gospel. Now, with your neighbors... Mowing their lawn when they're on vacation is not going to proclaim that gospel. Our good works validate. They, they help demonstrate. They help grant people a sense of interest or of, of credibility to our witness. But when it comes to the home and those that are closest to us, there's a good chance they already know. They already know what you believe. They're watching to see if it really makes a difference in your life. So live as an example before them. That's the second thing I would say. Number three, quickly, is this. Pray without ceasing. We are told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray. Pray about the big things. Pray about the small things. Don't you think your Father in heaven wants to hear from you about that which weighs heaviest on your heart? So pray. Pray about these family members who don't yet know. Pray that God would open their eyes, that God would work in them, that God would save them. Invite others to be praying for that as well. And number four, here's what I would say to you. If you have family members who don't believe, don't you dare give up. Don't give up. Live with hope. My great-grandfather, whom I met, became a Christian when he was 99 years old. You have no idea the story that God is writing for your loved ones. You have no idea the journey that God is taking them on. You have no idea how this story is going to end. So don't lose hope. You, you don't know how God is working in that person's heart. And you may say, Devin, they've, they've plunged off the deep, deep end. They have given themselves to debauchery and wickedness. And they are just embracing all of this wickedness. God may be in this very moment showing them and revealing to them how this end, this life, these patterns of behaviors and these habits lead to nothing but emptiness and death. So don't give up. Live with hope. Love them. 
serve them. Be an example before them. Pray for them and live with hope. Christianity has so many converts that were far less likely to come to faith than your loved ones. This is what God specializes in. Don't give up hope. Don't stop believing. Don't stop praying. The story's not done yet. You know, one of the things that I love as you read the Gospels carefully is you'll see Jesus was a man on a mission, a cosmic mission to save sinners from their sin, to rescue people for himself. And yet, even when his family didn't fully believe, he refused to cut them off. Later in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus is being crucified on the cross. And he looks out and he sees his mother and then he sees John, one of his 12 disciples. The disciple, more than likely, we're talking about the disciple whom he loved, which was likely John. And he takes a specific moment there as he's being crucified to look out and say, Mom, this guy is going to be like a son to you. And John... You treat her like your own mother. You take care of her. You help her. He cares about his mother's well-being, even amidst all of this grandiose plans that he is accomplishing. Later on, he makes a point to appear to his brothers after his resurrection because he cares about them. He does not cut them off, ignore them, or sever the relationship simply because they don't believe. He goes above and beyond for each of them. And may we do the same. Now, there's another kind of angle here that I want to encourage you with. And by way of application, there's not much, but I would say this. The application for my second point here today is really just to pause and worship. To let your heart feel what this actually means. Because it's this. If you have trusted in Jesus, think about this. He calls you family. You see, there are those who think and talk like theology is just dry, academic, boring type stuff. That all it does is divide Christians, so we should just focus on lesser things and the, the simple things and so forth. And No, we all have a theology. Whether you're an atheist, you're agnostic, a committed believer, we all have theology. Theology is simply our thoughts about God, our thoughts about where all this came from and why we're here. And far from being cold and detached and and severe, this theological truth that we see here in the text is meant to cause our hearts to rejoice that Jesus Christ is not afraid to call you family. Who are, in verse 34, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. That if you have trusted in Christ, he looks at you with joy, with love, as a brother or a sister. 
Now, we all have family. And sometimes we have family that we're a little bit uh, embarrassed about. Not me. Because I have many family members who watch this stream. So <clears throat> they're all world beaters. Incredibly well-adjusted and balanced individuals. But let's be honest. Many times you can have family members that are a little bit awkward, a little bit strange, a little bit odd. Right? You got Uncle Bill who's obsessed with pickling stuff, and every dinner he's like, you know what else you can pickle? You can pickle duck eggs. You ever had a pickled duck egg? And you're like, no, Uncle Bill, how are they? Oh, they're the best. Nothing beats a pickled duck egg, and he's always on about it. You got Aunt Agnes, who's got 37 cats, wears a tinfoil hat, and just knows how everything in this world system is working together with all of her conspiracy theories and so forth. I mean, the point is, we all got family that sometimes we're a little bit embarrassed about. Jesus isn't embarrassed to call you brother or sister. I mean, he knows you. He knows everything. He knows your hard-heartedness, your hard-headedness. He knows your stubbornness, your struggles, your sins, your insecurities, your weaknesses. And he looks at you with love. He is not ashamed to call you family. He gave his life to rescue you, to redeem you, to make you new. He is not going to give up on you just because you are a little awkward. You see, the Bible explains that those of us who have trusted in Christ who have turned from their self-salvation or proving themselves or earning something for themselves, that those who have turned from that and turned towards Jesus with faith, belief, trust, recognize that, man, I'm a sinner and my only hope is Jesus Christ crucified. He took my punishment. He took and absorbed the penalty that was due for me and he rose from the dead for my life. That's my one hope. I'm holding on to him. That everyone who does that becomes a part of the family that God is making. We are told in scripture that this happens two ways. It happens through the new birth and it happens through adoption. We are born again into a living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1. You have to be born again to inherit the kingdom of God, John chapter three. When you place your faith in trust in Christ, we can be born again and we're also adopted into God's family in Ephesians chapter one, verse five. So we are doubly God's children. And this is a truth that at your highest or at your lowest, that needs to be the foundation of your self-understanding and identity. It's so easy to build our identities on all these fragile things. I'm the smart guy, I'm the pretty girl, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the, I'm the great leader, I'm the great preacher, I'm this, I'm that. Man, you don't need that stuff. It's nothing compared to the reality that you can stand with confidence and say, man, I'm a child of God. I've been made new. I've been born again. I've been adopted into his family. God is my father. He delights in me, not because of anything I've done, but because of Christ. 
This isn't dry, academic, and stuffy theology. This is life-giving and affection-revolutionizing theology. We are told in 1 John chapter 5 that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. But here's the responsibility. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever else has been born of God. I mean, maybe you're here and you would say, I got a Kincaid painting like family. Everything's just perfect. We get together and it's just paradise and we all get along and now all my grandchildren are around us and it's so life-giving and and joy-filled. Maybe you're here and your family is incredibly dysfunctional, like generations of dysfunction. You don't even know what a healthy family looks like. What God has done here in his people, at Berean, in a local church, is create a new family, a spiritual family. And there's responsibilities. We're told here that if you have actually been born of God, you will love others who have been born of God. So what that means is that in this spiritual family, we have a responsibility one to another, to love, to care for, to support, and to serve. Maybe you've got lots of time and energy and, and resources. Maybe you have giftings or abilities. Maybe you have a trade. Maybe you have expertise. These are to be used as a way to bless one another. We have quite a high level of affluence in this church. Praise God for that. It's a good thing when Christians work hard, they hustle, they build something, and God blesses it. Praise God for that. But all the stuff that you buy all these blessings from God, these properties and hobbies and all these things that you can do, man, praise God for that, but please recognize something important. They're not meant to stop with you. That God has blessed you in these ways so that you can be a blessing to others. That you can open your life Offer some of your resources to be a blessing to those who don't have. And this is, we are never meant to be an end point of God's blessing. We're always meant to be a conduit to bless those around us. There is a responsibility to love. So if you have a lot of theological and biblical knowledge and you've got time, man, you better find someone who needs some help, who needs some guidance, a new believer, and pour into them. You know, you made it through being a mother and now you're a grandmother. There's gonna be some young moms around who need some mentoring. But what has God given you and how can you be a blessing to those around you in the family of God? And let me also say this quickly. Maybe you're here and you would, you would say, hey, as soon as you started talking about dysfunctional families, I was like, yeah, that's me. And you've got no idea how to fight in a marriage. You've got no idea how to discipline your kids. You have no idea how to control yourself. No idea how to do a budget. No idea how to be a grown-up. Because you have never seen it modeled. 
There are hundreds of couples here, of individuals, of older men, older women, who can help you. What an opportunity to say that you are not defined by your family of origin, by the dysfunction in your past, that there is a new spiritual family here. What a gift and what a responsibility. Now let me wrap this up. In John chapter one, we read these words, and I want you to think about it carefully with me. It says, to all who did receive him, who received Christ as Lord, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because maybe you're here and you would say, I'm not a part of this family of God that you're talking about. Maybe you've never trusted in him. You've never received him like the verse talks about. You've never believed in him. Today can be the day that you are welcomed, that you are born again and adopted into God's family. Be welcomed into this spiritual family that God is building. If that's you and you would desire a personal and intimate relationship with your Father in heaven, I want you to do something for me. After our service, we will have people standing up here. I want you to come and ask the questions that you have. I want you to come and pray with someone. I want you to come And I pray that God will grant you the courage to come forward, that today can be the day that you experience this new birth. As you receive Christ as Lord, as you believe in him, you will have the right to become a child of God. Not through your works, not through your efforts, but by receiving, by believing in him. After our service, there will be people standing here. Maybe you have a friend or family member who's not a believer yet. And they're heavy on your heart. Come and pray. Just call out to God with your brothers and sisters here. We want to support you in this and pray with you and for you. Maybe you would say, Devin, I want to take the first step in becoming a part of the family of God. Well, then come forward. We love you. And we want to help you explore what it means to follow Christ and be welcomed into his family. Let me pray. Jesus, only you through the Holy Spirit can take your word and press it into our hearts. So whatever you want to do in our hearts and minds today, would you do by the power of the Holy Spirit? May we be a spiritual family to carry out and live out our responsibilities to one another. For those who are here who have family members who don't believe, may they never give up hope. May they pray faithfully, serve in love and be an example. Father, for those who are here who are not yet children of God, may today be the day. Give them the courage to come forward, I pray, for we ask this in the name of the one who makes all this possible, 
our great and glorious older brother and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.